Welcome to the Way Back Then podcast. The podcast is produced by myself, Tony Michaelidis, a.k.a. Tony the Greek, and Ritman Media. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Way Back Then podcast. The podcast is produced by myself, Tony Michaelidis, a.k.a. Tony the Greek, and Ritman Media. Hope you enjoy it. In today's podcast, we'll feature an interview that I organised with Mark Radcliffe in 1983, just before the war tour. For those people this side of the Atlantic, i.e. in America, Mark Radcliffe is a very well-respected broadcaster for the BBC in the UK, with some 40 years' experience, having produced, presented and um, hosted Glastonbury events for television, etc. And uh, Mark was an early adopter of U2, if you like, and uh, this is where I brought them in for him to do an interview with them in 1983. And we'll follow that with Bono and The Edge just talking about where they're up to. And then we will have more U2 programmes in the Way Back Then podcasts. But meanwhile, we'll start this with a little bit of chat with me and Mark Radcliffe, where we talk about the first time we saw you two at Manchester Polytechnic, third on the bill, May the 31st, 1980. Yes, 40 years ago. So we decided to go on a rainy Saturday night to Manchester Polytechnic. Do you want to pick it up there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, uh, I remember that venue. I liked that venue. It was just kind of um, just a college disco hall, really, like a... Not a gymnasium exactly, but just a big room, you know, with kind of echoey with a little balcony in it and things. No, not a high-tech venue at all, like an old school hall, really. And uh, I'd always enjoyed going there when I was a student. It had a good disco on a Tuesday night, and I saw a few good bands there, XTC and people I saw in that room. And there was this band called uh, U2, because they, were, they obviously were on island, so they must have released something, maybe one or two singles maybe day without you or, or whatever maybe that that would have been it and there were being there was a manchester connection because they were such big fans of the joy division record that uh, those records had been produced by the late martin hannett who was the sort of house producer at factory records wasn't he he was um so yeah so we went down to see you two it was a rate it was a foul night uh, you know unusual for manchester which you know for those <laughs> who don't know it's a kind of picturesque fishing hamlet the, uh, <laughs> you know, in the northwest of England, uh, where the sun always shines. And so I remember it vividly. I remember uh, um, we, you told me I was driving, which was unusual. To be fair to you, you always drove. But that night I drove. We went in and we watched you 2 My recollection of you 2 was that even though they, they were young, I mean, and Bono was sort of doing all sorts of elaborate jumps. He had obviously had massive confidence. Larry had his old haircut. Adam had a big sort of boof on, I think. But the, uh, my, my strong recollection of that was that the guitar sounded amazing. Um, and uh, The Edge was playing a Gibson Explorer, a natural Gibson Explorer, through, I think, a Vox AC30, which he had pointed away from the stage. Um, and it had very few effects. And, 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 but it sounded exactly like you too. Now it takes about 14 people working under the stage to make them sound like you two. But to me, 
my recollection is they sounded like you two then it was all there they were obviously kind of they came sort of fully formed and um they were amazing we went and had a drink with them and found them to be very chummy and that was the start of a you know um quite a long friendship particularly for you but also me because i was living in the same house where they would drop by occasionally and uh, lovely fellas and so we said oh that was great brilliant and then we went outside in the pouring rain and um, we walked back to where my car should have been and found that it wasn't um, and we stood there in the rain sort of looking at a space on the road as if it would somehow bring it back <laughs> and and then um, so we thought right the car's been nicked so we went back into the we went back really down the dumps um, talking to you two saying car's been nicked as if they cared they've just <laughs> done a really good gig i remember i remember the edge being really oh really sorry about that i mean what why were we lumbering you two with the fact that my car had been stolen um and uh, anyway i did eventually get the car back i remember being very insulted because on the back seat of the car was what i thought was a very cool jacket and they hadn't bothered to nick it so I thought, you know, well, that, that was rude. So, yeah, that was the first time I saw you two. And, I, and then we saw them a few times, didn't we? I remember, um, we, I remember standing on the side of the stage at the, uh, in Liverpool. Uh, now, what would the theatre have been? Royal Court. The, and the, but the, the Royal Court and the Alarm were the support. And we were stood on the side of the stage with Bono because he was a massive fan of, uh, of the Alarm, who were a very powerful live act in those days. And so, um, uh, you know, I do remember that. And uh, I also remember one night that um, uh, American uh, listeners to this will probably be aware of a legendary London rock and roll club called the Marquee. Um, do you remember this? Uh, the, the Marquee, a little club, it's not there anymore. And uh, we were in Manchester, which is about 180 miles away. I know people in America go 180 miles to pick up a sandwich, but it was quite a long way. And we um, uh, we suddenly, on a whim, said, you two are on in the marquee tonight. Shall we go? And we went, and you drove. Because <laughs> I've always remembered it. I've always remembered it, because on the way back, uh, we got a burger and chips from a service station. And you told me you were an expert, because you spent so much time on the road, you told me you were an expert at having food on your lap and eating it while still <laughs> driving. And as you turned out the services, you turned too quickly and all your chips spilt on the floor of the car. So I thought that was hilarious. That You know, you two became very close to us, didn't they? And they stayed at your house where I was living. And, you know, I remember coming back from a late night radio show I was doing and finding them on the floor in the sleeping bags. And they had a barbecue there. And of course, you named the house after one of them. In those days, Bono's voice, he could never reach the high notes, could he? Uh, no, I mean, I just remember, I mean, I, I can't remember his voice that as well as I was just struck by the confidence, you know, I mean, he was someone who looked like he was born to be in front of a rock band. He looked, he just looked like he was loving being there. And I think um, it was interesting at that time because um, obviously um, in sort of fashionable or credible music circles, it was a bit kind of old fashioned to be a Mick Jagger style rock star. You know, people were a bit more subdued and cool than that. You know, if you think about people like Ian Curtis in Joy Division or later Barney in New Order or someone like Ian McCulloch in Echo and the Bunnymen, you know, it, they were never working it like Bono did, you know. And I, I remember thinking, yeah, you know, that's, that's, um, it's interesting to see someone throw themselves wholeheartedly into the role of frontman, you know, and uh, 
and, and, and so it continued. And obviously, you know, Bono has his, his legions of fans and his detractors, but without him fronting that band, it's obviously, it would have been impossible for them to succeed. I also remember them just being a charming bunch of people, just really nice, you know. I think at that point there was some religion in the band, wasn't there? I think it was, was Adam a Christian, I think. No, 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 Adam was the only one who wasn't. The other three were born again Christians. Right. I remember interviewing them a long time ago, you know, and thinking, and I, I was saying to Bono, if someone left, would that, would it still be you too? And he said, I don't think so. You know, I mean, don't forget, of course, it was, it's Larry's band, isn't it? Larry oh, yeah. formed it. In his kitchen, yeah. It's his band. It's his yeah. band. Um, most bands are someone's band. You know, there is a de facto leader who the others will, if it comes to it, defer to. It's his, his or her band. And uh, and you two is Larry's band, but perhaps you know he's kept the more kind of fiery elements of that band uh, sort of at peace I with each other. Not that they didn't seem particularly fiery, you know. I mean, I never witnessed them having arguments. Bono was obviously um, a man, you know, with the necessary ego to be a lead singer, but the others all seemed, you know, they were always very mild mannered, friendly, not at all standoffish, very friendly, very open. Um, and, uh, you know, so at that point, I was going to say unaffected, but of course they had nothing to be affected by at that stage. But uh, what they're like now, of course, I haven't seen them for a um, hundred years. Have you not interviewed them for a long time then? No, no. I mean, no, not for a very long time. Um, and um, yeah, it'd be interesting to know and to see if what, what they remember of those times, actually. One of the things you two prove is that you don't have to have a big hit single. And, you know, it's not as if we've opted for the pop format with New Year's Day. New Year's Day is, is, is one in a, in a succession of, I believe, classic singles from 11 o'clock TikTok, I Will Follow, Gloria, you know, Celebration. They've all been the same. Not one of them's been a pop single in inverted commas. In fact, I find pop singles in inverted commas very, very boring. You know, I... Uh, pop is probably a better word. So I, I would contest the fact that it's been very important for us. It may be a means to an end. It may be a means to getting us across to a wider audience. And I'm all in favour of that. But does Top of the Pops mean a lot to my life? No, it does not. Yeah, I think in a way that's why Newsday was released, is that we saw it as a sort of crossover song between some of our earlier work and, and war. And that that sort of shows sort of the thinking behind the release of a U2 single. It's not because we feel that a song is going to roar up the charts. It's because it, it just felt right. And New Year's Day would never have been released if it hadn't been the first one off, off the, re of the record. So um, I think you're right. It is a bit more representative. But I think when we went in to record this album, we decided that we didn't want to... Um, carry over some of the more distinctive aspects of the U2 sound. We wanted to break new ground, we wanted to actually broaden the base of what is accepted as, as the U2 sound. Without mellowing out, or without resorting In to fact, the usual techniques. I, I'd go so far as to say actually doing the opposite of mellowing out, but, but getting more aggressive, more biting. Uh, certainly in the guitar there's, there's less sort of ambient echo and more kind of jagged, clean, uh, aggressive sound. I think there's always been sort of in, we've been in and out of fashion, like like some, some sort of uh, thing that doesn't fit in. It's like we're a uh, round peg in a square hole and people just 
cannot decide whether you two should be the hip thing or not. I mean, we were certainly uh, kind of on, on the tip of everyone's tongue around the time we released 11 o'clock TikTok. Everyone was saying how this band were really kind of hip. At this stage, I think they, they don't know what they want. You know, some, some of them are saying it's, it's, it's rubbish. Some are saying it's the best thing that's happened to music for 10 years. There's just total indecision. It's confusion, and I, I'm interested in that it has caused confusion. Because if everyone said, well, what a nice record they've released, isn't it fab? I'd be worried. I don't want to be in fashion. Being in fashion implies going out of fashion. I like to provoke a reaction. An LP like War, of course it's going to provoke reaction. And as I say, we've had two contrasting opinions have come across. Um, I think in this week's New Musical Express, uh, you know, we have a we have one writer says it's the best record in ten years. We have another writer who says it's not. I think they both both agree that you two are in, in our purpose are are strong. I think they were both into the band actually, but uh, we always find with our records that it takes about a year before people fully come to terms with them. And I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, when we released Eleven O'clock TikTok people in our, in our own country in Ireland said, no way, sorry, you've blown it, lads. With a drum that loud, a snare drum that loud, no way. wasn't played on the radio. People said, you know, what about U23, your first single? You know, you've really... Who's this fellow Martin Hannett anyway? He's really destroyed you. Rubbish. 11 o'clock TikTok was right for its time. What followed then was I will follow. And what followed was Boy. And everyone was, at that stage... Custom to 11 o'clock TikTok. Oh, you'll never improve on 11 o'clock TikTok. Boy, it's no good. You've really blown it, lads. The same thing happened for October. The same thing will happen for war. Now they're saying boy is brilliant. Now they're saying October is brilliant. And next year, when they're all fed up to their teeth with this techno pop, when they're fed up to their teeth with this elitist rubbish that's being forced down our throats by the music press, then they're going to realise that war is a punk rock album. And that 1983 has a, a needs a slap in the face. Yeah, I think we are suffering because we're ahead of our time and uh -huh. because we're too outspoken. I think they're the two things that people are kind of criticising us on. I think that in a year's time, people will turn around and say, "Well, you know, this album was important," and the fact that we're actually putting ourselves on the line is is very, I think, very uh, significant in this record. And people, okay people can sort of pick us up on that and sort of give us a rough time and that's fair enough but I think it's still still to our credit that we haven't kind of sat back and taken the easy route look I'll tell you I mean that is putting our life on the line why because it's an anti-IRA song why because it's an anti-UDA song it's anti-Irish it's anti-British it's the only thing that's pro is love the only thing is pro is surrender I'm sick of flags I'm sick of the whole the whole rigmarole nationalism or anti-nationalism or royalism or loyalism I don't want to talk about it this is a song of disgust it says how long must we sing this song it says broken bottles under children's feet bodies strewn across a dead end street but I won't heed the battle call it puts my back up puts my back up against the wall and the battle's just begun there's many lost but tell me who has won the trenches dug within our hearts mother's children brothers, sisters torn apart. A guy in the New Musical Express today said that he listened to that and he was unmoved. I tell you, if he listened to that and he was unmoved, he was deaf, dumb as well as blind. 
You're listening to the Way Back Then podcast with me, Tony Michaelidis. The Way Back Then podcast delves into some archive interviews from the 80s and 90s, together with some music industry icons. Today's guests, you two, an interview Mark Radcliffe did with them in 1983, just prior to their war tour. Let's get back to it. It's the loudest ending on a song since my generation by The Who. It, this is it. I mean, this is this is the slap in the face, this song. It's a song about waking up, waking up youth culture. And the 60s youth culture was strong in itself, a force that could change, for instance, people's attitude to Vietnam. You know, uh, somebody in one of the papers today said, uh, don't you know you can't change the world? Hey, Bono. Hey, The Edge. Don't you know you can't change the world? And, you know, I was... I was disgusted because that's kind of just lying down in it. That's apathy. In the 60s, if people took to the streets, they changed things. And I'm not necessarily saying that people take to the streets. But this is a song about the divisions in youth culture. You know, I'm a punk, I'm a skinhead, I'm this, I'm that. Youth are useless nowadays because they've been divided. And this, at the same time, it isn't Jimmy Percy saying, if the kids are united. But it's just saying, you know... The song saying, "Look, let's break through this." You know, this, I see this as a very exciting age to be a part of. We're entering a whole new age of technology, a whole new age of leisure, because people are going to be on the streets now. Unemployment can't decrease; it really can't. You know, we can say it's going to be great, everything's going to be fine, but it's not, and people are going to have to deal with their leisure time. Clerical classes are all out. Computers are all in. If it's happening in music, you know, machines are taking over. It's certainly happening in, in all other levels of society. This is a song, it's an angry song, like a song. But the answer is not to take to the streets with sticks and stones. You know, it starts at home. Revolution starts at home, in yourself. You know, I want I a revolution in my life. What we're also kind of reacting against is something which I think far more insidious and far more dangerous than, than a lot of the issues, and that is the sort of apathy, the disease of yeah. apathy that is That's sweeping it. through not just kind of the sort of the, the people who should be grown up and grown out of that type of thing, but through the people who should be getting involved and, and sort of making their voices heard. People are just not really that interested in that sort of thing anymore. Yeah. That's when what this record's about. This record is war against apathy, war against cynicism. You know, as much as anything else. Cynicism is, is more dangerous often. You know, it, it, when I said Sunday Bloody Sunday, the trenches dug within our hearts, that's where the real damage is done. Not in buildings that are pulled down, not in the dole queues, but if people actually give in to apathy or give in to cynicism. War is about getting up. It's a refusal to lie down and get up, fight back. Mm. I think, in you a know, way, that's what we've done, in that we've kind of not held back. We haven't sort of shied away from sometimes making fools of ourselves on stage and we haven't sort of worn the, the long overcoat to hide everything, you know. We we put ourselves on the line. I mean, to, to say that again, I think it's important that I think if people are prepared to do that, then that, that's good. If people are too scared to to, uh, to to sort of have the spotlight on themselves, then then they are the people that lose, I think. They were beginning to tire of, of some of the more sort of throwaway aspects of pop music and that the youth 
there's something that they hadn't really um, delved into prior to this time U2 was now becoming particularly palatable particularly what they wanted to hear I don't think we've changed our stance we've never we've never tried to release singles for the express purpose of having hits we always released singles that we felt were the right thing to release and the fact that this has become a hit just proves that you know people are beginning to get interested in what we're doing My Two Hearts Beat is one isn't a hit yeah it is a love song a love song that's fighting to explain itself and love always stands out against a struggle there's a thing in the bible that says was it love others um, as you love yourself you've got to love yourself a lot of people think you know yeah man I'll, lo I'll love you you've got to actually develop a kind of a, a, a respect for yourself and uh, you know I'm not saying that I'm completed on this I'm not sure sometimes I hate myself sometimes I get very sick of Bono but um, you know this two hearts beat is one it's about trying to explain this emo an emotion called love I wanted to be in the top ten of course I do I wanted to be in the top ten because if it's why? in the top ten it means that somebody else like uh, some commercial enterprise isn't in the top ten I think like you mentioned bands like Yazoo and Blamange, essentially they they are catering for discos and sort of the music they create is very clean, very powerful, very easy. It's a sort of co it's it's a consumer item. You just hear it and that's that. What people go to concerts for, and what I went to concerts for, was was to see a, um, something on stage, to see a personality, to get close to something, you know. And and that I think is what what we are is is for people on stage. There's something more than just an album being played over a big PA system there. Yeah, who there's wants some that? soul, there's some heart and soul. It's there. gut, you know, I mean, what is the point? I mean, it's not that we have a guitar, bass and drums, that's nothing to do with it. You know, I think Alf, the singer, is, he's got a great voice. In fact, I think she's going to find a proper band so that she can do her voice justice, instead of having those warbling, those little twiddling noises in the background, find them irritating. A voice like that deserves space, it deserves the respect of human beings behind it. And you know, I don't. Uh, I'm not against machines. We're gonna we're gonna work uh, in a metronomic way for a thing we have coming up, which needs a metronomic thing, which is a ballet. We're, you know, uh, and so we're gonna get into that. I'm not against the machines. I'm not somebody stuck in it or set in, in in our ways. You know, it's nothing to do with that. It's a question of guts and feeling. That's why people come to see us live because we're not hiding behind a haircut. We're not putting on a mask. It's just four people with all the excitement and everything over the last couple of months we've just discovered that our audience has, has grown to the extent where we really there is a demand for us to go back in fact we we're going to be playing something like four london shows when we only did one or maybe two the last time as we speak we're, we're trying to put together the songs and if we can remember how to play them we certainly will be I and mean, we want we want this to be a radically new set for you too but, you know, it's, it's very difficult, actually, pulling it out of the hat, a radically new set. Mm. You know, for me, performance is, is, is like a very complete thing. You know, it starts, it has a beginning, a middle and an end. It rises and falls. The places it rises and falls are very important. If it falls in the wrong places, you fall as well with it. You know, we're not just relying on the power of the group for this new set. I really would like them to be a lot of light and shade. That's very difficult. 
very difficult because we're not classically trained musicians. We weren't musicians at all. We just four people who started a band called U2. We learned how to play. And, you know, a lot of the music, got, you know, is, is very detailed. And is, is very technical. And being able to play it is quite difficult, you know? And so it'll be as interesting for me as the audience to see how this set works. I told you. No, you didn't. Well, anyway, I went to Foster Circus when I was a kid. And uh, it was incredible because the guy who was the strong man, as soon as he finished being a strong man, uh, he used to plug himself into a light bulb and things like that. He, he would end up, you know, it seemed ten minutes later, handing out all the leaflets for what they were doing next. And the guy who was selling ice cream turned out to be Merlin the magician and things like that. And the guy who's the monkey turned out to be the owner or whatever. But, you know, it's a bit like that in our operation. I mean, it is. It does revolve around the four people. In fact, it does, musically, in a lot of ways, Edge has to stretch himself. It should be known. It's as if I want to live, I've got to die to myself someday. You know, a lot of struggle, which is what the album's about, a lot of friction is, is down to pride, ego. You know, instead of people stepping on other people's toes. That's what it is, you know, the business of getting on, promotion, you know, me first, you know, you second. Surrender, the concept of surrender, is that real love asks nothing for itself, real love steps back. And uh, that is how you dissolve uh, aggressive situations. You don't dissolve them by saying, I'm right, I'm right. You know, you dissolve them by apology. Somebody said to me once, you know, it was two people were talking to me about their relationship. They were a boy and a girl. And they, they were talking, well, they were a woman and a man, actually. And they were saying that whenever there was aggression between the pair of them, they felt there wasn't a question of who's right, you know, goes up, and who's wrong has to say sorry. If there's any aggression between them, they both deserve, you know, to back down and to diffuse a situation. You know, l real love, which is the only thing that will sort out the problems in Northern Ireland, the only problem that will sort out the problems in a city, you know, is what this album's about, ultimately. You know, happiness is easy. You know, I think happiness is... Don't fudge the issue, Bono. Are you happy? You know, well, if I t right now, you know, I feel very ill. You know, I feel like I'm going to go back and go to bed, you know, but I have a peace inside of myself. And that's something that's, that's more important than, ha than happiness. You know, that's what I feel uh, as I wake up in the morning, I have a great peace in my life. Happiness just depends on circumstances. You know, it's a nice day, so I feel happy. It's, uh, you know, people are buying our records in thousands, I feel happy. You know, but that's not real happiness. You know, if you've got real peace, it means that you should be able to weather any storm. It means when nobody's buying your records, when when the weather isn't fine, you know, when the, when the rain is beating on your window, if you've still got that peace, well, then you've got something that's special. Were you ever in that position? What position? When people weren't buying your records and the rain was beating on the window and it wasn't a nice day. Um, there's no real answer to that, is there, Edge? Yeah. You've been listening to the Way Back Then podcast. Today's guest was Mark Radcliffe and some fascinating stories about meeting you two for the first time and then an interview I arranged with him in 1983 prior to the U2 war tour 
with Bono and The Edge. Over the coming weeks, there'll be another three programmes devoted entirely to you 2 We have interviews from a couple of music industry people who were Island Records in the very, very early days. Also, Malcolm Gary, who was involved in putting together the entire Red Rocks under a blood red sky. Absolutely incredible event at Red Rocks, Colorado. Then, to finish it off, we will hear... A 1984 interview that I myself did with the band um, during their Unforgettable Fire tour and just prior to what happened at uh, Live Aid, which was spectacular. In between that, there'll be plenty of other good stuff. So please subscribe, listen to the podcast, enjoy it like I am. See you next week.